Hello, welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we'll bring you exclusive and original stories and interviews offering agenda-setting insight from inside the game from David and writers from across The Athletic. Coming up today, we'll detail the latest plans in place for football to return from the perspective of club executives and owners. And we'll also hear what the players themselves have shared with The Athletic over the last few days. You can enjoy The Athletic for free for 90 days right now. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman, theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Let's start, David, with comments from Steve Parrish uh, over the weekend. Uh, the Crystal Palace chairman uh, wrote in the Sunday Times, didn't he? Uh, and the Athletics' Don Fifield says that those words were articulate and persuasive. It, it was nice, before we get on to specifically what he said, just to hear from somebody at the high end of a club who is involved in this process. Yeah, the communication was good. I think it was much needed. I think the public uh, and all of us have been crying out for... A bit of clarity, just a voice in this to kind of steer us forward. And I do understand the complications in speaking out, especially when negotiations are mainly private, confidential and extremely complex. At the moment, pretty much everything is hypothetical. There are some plans being put in place, but it all rests on the government's guidance. Now, we should uh, hear more from the government on Thursday when the lockdown review takes place or perhaps on Sunday when I think there's an important statement too. In and around that, the Premier League will continue talking and meeting, drawing up their plans, speaking to their various stakeholders, their players, managers, clubs. Um, There's a lot of uh, agendas at play here, a lot of different debate, uh, preference, um, ego, and it's getting quite ugly behind the scenes, uh, which no one wanted. It didn't start that way. It was all pretty harmonious when when this crisis began. But as we've talked about on this podcast, it was never going to continue that way with so many competing interests. And to hear Steve Parrish speaking um, in such a mature and balanced way, um, whether he was right or wrong on all All of his points will be argued by many people because he's speaking from the perspective of a a chairman and co-owner, somebody who runs a club and wants the season to finish. And he explained why. Others will um, argue why they don't think it should um, and who sit in different camps like players, like medics, uh, like supporters. And so we do have to be aware that everybody's entitled to their say. There are some very valid points out there. There's some more unpleasant stuff out there, some skullduggery, I think, going on in certain quarters. There's some very important times coming up. There's still a bit of time window of opportunity you could say to get this right but the clock is ticking when you say skullduggery would you say that's based on self-interest yep but there's self-interest all over the league and leagues and industry and corridors of power everybody has their own priorities everybody has their own feelings and we're starting to see them play out in the various different conversations and briefings and it's not healthy, it's not edifying, and it's not conducive to us getting through this in a in an amicable way. But I understand why it happens, because there's so much at stake. There's so many contrasting views, and it's becoming really hard to separate the health pandemic that's going on and the need for an industry like football, like many other industries, 
to get moving. He's he's very strong on what I would call the, the obvious things, but maybe some people haven't haven't spoken out on this, making sure that if if people within football clubs are going to get tested, that can't be the expense of any single key worker not having a test. Yeah, and it won't be. There is a caveat in there. If the nation decides that the gravity of events dictates that it's simply not appropriate to play, then we must and will respect that. You have mentioned other businesses thinking about other areas, hospitality area, of course, thinking about how they eventually start operating again. Uh, I wonder if this parish quote resonates with other executives and chairmen that you maybe have been talking to. Um, Are we convinced things will look so much different in August or September from how they do today? Many of the same issues regarding player welfare, venues and closed doors matches will exist then. The more we can work it out now, the better chance we have of coming out of this with the game we all love in a position to recover over time. Yeah, I agree with that. We, We can't be convinced about anything because it's a novel virus. There's no vaccine so there's no way we can know uh, how this is going to pan out in those months or subsequent months beyond there and that's why some leagues are looking at the potential of playing behind closed doors throughout next season as well we've got debates over transfer windows contracts medical procedures broadcasting you name it it's a world of unknown the only thing you should be doing and i completely agree with the premier league and i wouldn't understand anyone who doesn't agree on this and there are people who don't agree on this it's wise to be planning in case you're going to come back they're doing their due diligence they're getting on with their proposals in the event of receiving encouraging news from the government the same is happening in italy where this week they're returning to uh, individual training inside their training bases and by that it's more more of the fitness stuff we've seen at the likes of tottenham and arsenal in the last week or so Um, and then they'll look to step it up around the 18th of may when the government in italy will be giving its latest update it's similar here so manchester city for example uh, will be calling their players back in on monday the 11th of May in individual time slots for medical assessment and fitness tests over that first week and then from the 18th hoping to step up into small-sided training sessions small groups I should say and then eventually leading to full training and potentially returning to play from Friday the 12th of June that is just a guideline it's just planning for an eventuality that would see the season finished the clear priority of the Premier League is to get this season finished but then we go into a whole world of debate around how that should finish behind closed doors at neutral venues what happens around testing what happens if players go down with the virus well we're seeing in Germany that they're hoping to manage that and progress and continue like the situation at Cologne. Then comes the moral argument that Steve Parrish talks about and the public feeling that he says is the only sort of insurmountable issue that he has encountered so far or that he can think of that's a really tricky one because there is no right answer it's all just debate conjecture opinion um he's saying if if other industries are trying to get back why shouldn't football and as a basic premise i agree with that we just don't know what's going to actually be possible Let's take the thoughts of the players into account now. The Athletics' Adam Crafton joins us on the Ornstein and Chapman pod. Hi, Adam. Hello, how are you? Uh, yeah, very good, thank you. Very good. Um, it, 
the easiest thing is to go. What do the players think about this? Because you've spoken to you've spoken to a lot of players, and you know, and subsequently their families about feeling about to return. But different players will feel different things depending on what situation they are in. Absolutely, and I think you know, speaking to different players last week, some. Oh, I actually think the vast majority are raring to go and want to go back, but there are there are very key exceptions. There are people who have wives who are pregnant. There are people who have elderly relatives. There are people who have maybe you know more than one or two children. They have four or five children in the house and don't really want to leave their wives or partners to deal with all the stress of that by themselves at this moment because in the way that you may normally be able to depend on grandparents or outside help, actually at times of social distancing that becomes far more difficult so it's it's those sorts of everyday issues that we don't really tend to apply to footballers that can become an issue and then there's people who are worried about catching the virus by going to work and bringing it home and being in contact perhaps at home with vulnerable people as well i wonder how easy it will be for clubs to take into account different situations of their players so i I was talking to somebody uh, high up at at a Premier League club on the on the medical side of things, and th- on the one hand, weighing up, do we bring all our players into a into a you know a, the equivalent of a training camp, lock them down, and that's how we deal with it, or do we literally lock them down at home, bring them into training, send them home again, but keep them in lockdown at home because the family guys on the squad will probably want to be at home. The younger single ones might actually, who are locked down at home at the moment and are bored, might actually like being in a training camp scenario with some of their mates. So one one size doesn't fit all in how the clubs come up with a policy here. No, and, and that's that, 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 unfortunately, that is the nature of a global pandemic, that there is no perfect solution for everyone in, in any industry at this time. So one side of that debate is going to have to make a sacrifice and i, I would I, I don't think what's i don't expect the this idea of a sort of quarantine training base to happen across the board it it, it may happen at certain clubs but from the conversations i've had and i know that colleagues have had as well i think there's quite a lot of opposition actually from players from being removed from their families at this time yeah that's a true point the uh, feeling i've got from speaking to a number of people and the Premier League is not at this moment um, contemplating this idea, which has been raised, of World Cup-style camps where you go into sterile hotel environments. Everybody's locked down for six or seven weeks, including the chefs and the cleaners, players, staff, etc. Loads of the players I've spoken to, families and no families, say, you're not locking me up for that time. I've got to get back home I don't want to be in that environment and I I don't think it's feasible a few said to me that if you're going to that extent why on earth are you considering football coming back at all and I think that's a fair point you're not seeing it in Germany Uh, the proposals are not to be seeing it elsewhere Uh, Adam's right you could see clubs implement their own kind of strategy and they're and they're free to do that but as things stand with project restart it's a complicated but pretty straightforward process in its essence that you train at your normal training ground you travel to your neutral venue to play your games it's not clear if you would be staying overnight there or not but all of the travel is hoped to be relatively equal in terms of distance and time for every club to every match 
it's not clear if you'll play every match at the same stadium, given that it's, it's a neutral venue. And essentially, you will be sleeping at your own home. Those are the plans as things stand. But key thing to remember here, the country is likely to look very different by the time we're talking about Friday, June the 12th, when the first match would potentially be in terms of the medical situation, in terms of testing, in terms of these plans, society, other industries. And so these proposals still have quite a long way to go, a lot of detail to be flushed out and finessed. And until we get that detail, it's really hard to say for us, for the players, for staff, anybody, how good it is or not. And that's where we come back to it's all opinion. So we kind of have to let the Premier League formulate this plan and then see if they can get the players and managers on board. If they can, it will go ahead. If they can't, then it's in big trouble. Also, the players and training is going to be very different as well, Adam, isn't it? I mean, I was talking to David Wagner last week, who's the Schalke manager, now former Huddersfield boss, of course, and his squad at the moment are training two on a pitch. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's how they are doing And they've had to actually build up to get to two on a pitch at the same time to stay within the rules of, of, of what the German government are asking them. So in all this, in all of these discussions, we keep being told, oh, you know, they'll need three weeks, four weeks training to get up to back up to speed. Well, training isn't going to be normal training. No, and it's going to be done in stages and guide with government health lines, public health England guidelines. And it's going to be different and it's going to be unusual. And I know that players were concerned, certainly last week, that they may have to train in masks. You know, my personal view is, you know, I find the idea of forcing athletes to wear masks while training. I think if we're still at that stage, then actually we're probably not at the stage where they should be doing it, to be honest. But that's just my personal view. I'm sure they'll take the views of the club doctors uh, before that. But I'm sure players, you know, particularly those who may have underlying respiratory conditions, such as asthma, for example, just won't feel comfortable doing that. Then there's the question of just overall fitness and risking injuries. And that's where there's another layer to this, which should come to the fore probably later this week, which is what do the PFA think about this? What is the employment conditions that clubs are able to provide? Is this, you know, by asking players to only do what may be 10 days to two weeks of full contact training, is that enough, you know, for, for players to actually feel confident to play top level football? Now, a lot of supporters, I'm sure, will be, may be listening to that and thinking, well, you know, every, nobody's got a perfect situation at the moment. But, you know, these guys have short careers and jeopardising it in that way, I, I don't think that's fair. So th- there's a lot of hurdles which need overcoming, as David said, and a lot of issues that could still be raised and a lot of excuses that could still be found. One top Premier League player I spoke to said that he won't train in a mask. Um, he doesn't see how he could breathe properly and it's a non-starter for him so that tallies with what Adam's saying there from a broader perspective and again we don't know the feelings of all players the sense I've got is that most players don't feel the clubs the league will allow them to go back into competitive action if there isn't the reasonable and agreed amount of training physical and technical preparation time that is recommended by the medical professionals and all of their uh, sports science staff, etc. Now, 
that sort of process could be open to abuse and conjecture and we could see a lot of arguments around that and it isn't the perfect scenario but I do think that if we get to the point where football is looking likely then they will do everything in their power to make sure that there is sufficient lead time that we don't turn around and and have some you know potentially career-ending injuries and then legal challenges etc it'll be very interesting to see what insurance is taken out in this process uh, which I know is being discussed within clubs and the PFA etc to especially for players who extend their contracts that are due to expire on the 30th of June to ensure that if they play are they sufficiently covered by insurance against a um, serious injury. There maybe is is the crux of all of this I mean you've both contributed to a piece on The Athletic that has the title of Project Restart might have to become Project Avoid Litigation. And maybe that really is, but that really is at the heart of all of this. I mean, I know Steve Parrish talks about money, but football is a, is a business. And therefore, as I said earlier, same way starting hospitality, business up again. That's why you look at starting the football business up again. It is about money in that sense. But, but, but in all of this, I wonder whether the majority of the discussions about making sure they they aren't the subject of a lawsuit, whether that be from broadcasters, players, whoever it may be. Absolutely, and I I, th- I think you're right, Mark. And I th- I think what's also interesting is that what we might see is not so much the players talking about this over the next few weeks, but actually clubs trying to talk on their behalf, particularly those clubs who are minded to think that they may not want to actually play this season to a conclusion for whatever interest. I think you're going to see a lot of arguments being made on their behalf from a health point of view by these clubs. Now, these arguments are valid, but I think it's it's certainly going to be a case of other clubs questioning the motivations behind that. And then on top of that, you are going to have cases of clubs taking out the insurance. And I'm sure the lawyers are, are all across this at the moment because this will be happening across all industries. And I think I may be, I may be incorrect, but I'm fairly sure tennis actually had pandemic insurance already. Wimbledon, Wimbledon did, yeah. Wimbledon did. So I'm sh- so that does exist, and I'm sure that will be used in future across all sports. There's going to have to be some sort of halfway house that recognises players. Yes, they are taking a risk, but yes, they are also at this point signing up to take a risk. There's going to be legal challenge, whatever happens. Exactly. Um, and you know, you look at the neutral venues idea. If a team is relegated when they were forced to play in neutral venues. Um, they play in their home venues, but behind closed doors. And then there's challenges that it wasn't the uh, normal environment that they would be playing in. You force players to play. There's potential for legal recourse there. Players refuse to play. And then the clubs perhaps try and take legal action against them to reclaim some of their salary. And those are just the, the basic points, not mentioning promotion, relegation, titles, um, lost earnings, uh, sponsors, broadcasters. The whole thing is absolutely head spinning and um, maybe some of the lawyers are, are, are rubbing their hands at the potential work and earnings, but nobody else is. It's a complete nightmare. I just want to move on to the neutral venues and, and how playing at a neutral venue can affect player performance. Adam, you wrote a, a great piece on on this back in January and that piece was really about how it's harder to win away from home than in your own stadium. Now, those clubs moaning about neutral venues, there is a tendency to just think, oh, 
get on with it. It's not like any Premier League club is the equivalent of Galatasaray. <laughs> but that, but they're, they're, basically, the bottom line is you think, oh, well, it's not intimidating atmosphere. What difference can it make? But it's more nuanced than that. It is. And it was quite, I, was just, I was just looking back through that piece this morning and the stat was that since its foundation in 1992, there's been 10,725 Premier League fixtures and 46% resulted in home wins compared to 28% away victories. So there is, without doubt, a very clear advantage from playing at home. However, in the circumstances where you don't have fans in the stadium, where you're playing behind closed doors, where it's quite an unusual setting anyway, I think it's fair to wonder how much of that home advantage will still exist. There'll be a degree of familiarity in the dressing rooms and the, the, the dimensions of the pitch. One of the interesting things was... I was talking to a member of Mauricio Pochettino's backroom staff at Tottenham, and he was explaining that when they went from playing at White Hart Lane and Wembley in the same season in that campaign where they played Champions League games at Wembley, the dimensions of the Wembley pitch were both longer and wider. And he and Pochettino had to adapt his training sessions quite significantly in terms of pressing drills to adapt to, to those different dimensions. So managers i think managers will have to change slightly but but these managers spend much of their lives telling us how much time they devote to all their all their training drills and being across everything so i'm sure they will find they can find a way to cope with that ultimately you know the home advantage isn't going to be a usual home advantage but i can understand you know brighton for example they have man united liverpool arsenal newcastle i think another top club uh, man city all to play at home before the end of the season, you can understand them feeling like we're missing out here. But unfortunately, that's just, there's a pandemic going on and we can't pick and choose everything that's happening. I'm really confused by the neutral venues uh, situation. It's not happening in the other major European leagues. When you look at the logistics of it, taking a Manchester United match away from Old Trafford and placing it at, say, Villa Park, for example, the idea that their fans are less likely to congregate at Villa Park than Old Trafford, maybe marginally, but Old Trafford is still an out-of-city location if people are observing lockdown rules at that point in time. If they are in place, then I don't see a great difference between the two. When you sort of ask these questions to people at the Premier League, they don't dispute them. They kind of just say, well, we're in the hands of the police and the sports ground body responsible for making these decisions and if they don't grant us licenses we can't play these matches at all and they're telling us that neutral venues is the only way at present that they'll grant these licenses I don't know this I just wonder if that might change in the coming weeks uh, depending on the government's guidance around lockdown it seems like it's the chosen course of action but what if it is subject to a vote and it doesn't get the necessary votes that it needs from the Premier League clubs then what are you going to do? You want to finish the season, but your clubs don't want to play at neutral venues and the authorities won't let you play at your home venues. Then you're either going to have to find an alternative solution to play or an alternative solution to end the season. So the neutral venues one, I don't get. I think it's largely flawed and it just seems to be a case of trying to get licenses to play football. I mean, your article also goes back to you know, differences between home and away dressing rooms and the home dressing room at grounds being better than the away dressing room. So, I mean, if you if you even went into that kind of detail, I suppose at least if you gave 
the actual home side, the home dressing room at a neutral venue, if I'm not contradicting myself, then at least something like that at least gives them a tiny advantage. Or am I, am I clutching at straws there? I think that, I think there can be a degree of it. Um, I think a lot of the modern stadiums, though, now have, you know, their dressing rooms are pretty good because they like to, you know, you look at Spurs, for example, West Ham, because these stadiums are used for so many different purposes now, I think that old idea of it's just this home football club's dressing room is quite outdated in the newer stadiums, maybe at a Selhurst Park, for example. But for the sense I'm getting is that they're trying to pin down stadiums that aren't right in the centre of towns and also aren't in the sort of residential hubs. So I would be surprised, for example, if they were to pick a Newcastle or the Merseyside clubs. I think it may be quite difficult from that point of view. But clubs like West Ham or uh, Brighton are probably well placed. Brighton would be absolutely ideal if anybody's been to Brighton. Yeah. It is miles out of town and absolutely. it's virtually one road in and, and one road out and isn't in a residential area from memory. So Brighton, for all they might be complaining about neutral grounds, Brighton <laughs> Stadium is actually perfect, probably. Yes, the problem is they just won't be allowed to play there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so fantastic for everyone else. Um, not, so, not so good for Brighton. Um, and I, sp- I suppose the other elements which I mentioned in the article is quite interesting uh, biological research, which just shows that players playing at home, there's a rise in cortisol and testosterone, which can trigger a rise in intensity, aggression, assertive behaviour, and therefore it might follow a rise in performance. But I would imagine so much of that is linked to knowing that fans are there yeah. in the stadium. So it's very difficult to pinpoint. It will, If the neutral grounds plan goes ahead, it'll be a fascinating time for those people who are sufficiently interested in that topic to write PhDs on it. I just don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that might be the next educational thing that I do. Who knows? Um, just the final thing on the neutral grounds, and you mentioned it, David, as regards licenses and the fear of you know people turning up if they weren't at neutral venues you know so if teams had their home games at their home stadium fans would turn up outside the ground i mean the merseyside derby is still to be played isn't it for example so if you play the merseyside derby at the brighton uh, uh, yeah or, or let's take take brighton as an example if you if you were to play the merseyside derby at brighton then you <laughs> There will be Liverpool fans in particular, I would have thought, based on the South Coast, or Everton fans, who might try and turn up outside the ground. And I know we're relying on the public to do the right thing, but it doesn't work like that. My personal view is, because last week the mayor of Liverpool came out, didn't he, and said that he it should be a no-brainer, uh, you can't trust fans, they'll turn up outside the stadiums. I think looking across the country over the past few weeks... You know, the country has been terrified into remaining indoors, and and rightly so, given the circumstances. I think it's quite infantilising of football fans to suggest they can't be trusted not to turn up outside en masse outside stadiums. I'm sure there will be a small number of people who get it wrong in those initial games. The question therefore becomes, is it is that a price worth paying for the overall benefits that would be gained that a few people will get things wrong and that will then blow up into i'm sure on social media everyone saying we knew this would happen and widespread condemnation i'm I'm quite confident that the british public will generally get that right The, the other thing to remember is that in six weeks time society may look very different to how it does today and it's very difficult at this moment in time to conceive of that because we're all locked inside our own houses with the exception of key workers 
and therefore it can be very difficult to think of how uh, the world might look but in six weeks time we may actually look around as if there's no football and think why why didn't we do this is it because the bait of bringing football back was brought around at this moment of deep fear within the psyche of the british people because everyone is at home everyone is 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 you know, concerned for the the health of their family and their friends, and they don't want to go out. So, I think at this moment in time, it's it's difficult. But I I, I do I do trust the public not to get it wrong if they know that these games go ahead. And if that's the case, I still question why you don't do it at your home stadium, moving it a, a, a relatively short distance away just to avoid potential gatherings. Something doesn't feel quite right about that to me. What I, I do understand the issues with stadiums that have smaller dressing rooms, tighter corridors and tunnels onto the pitch, certain infrastructure that makes social distancing a bit awkward. And I'm just guessing here, the likes of uh, Bournemouth or Everton or Crystal Palace, um, some of the older, smaller grounds. But somebody was explaining to me today, wait, you just take extra precaution then over when people are entering the pitch and dressing room, etc. There is something fundamental that I don't get about the neutral grounds. I think they need to actually, and, and this has been a problem from the start, hasn't it? It's something Gary Neville's been saying. I think the communication in terms of clear on the record communication from both the authorities, the government, the Premier League has not been clear enough in, in explaining why things need to be a certain way and at which pace. And I think that's that's one of the things again here, you know, the Premier League clubs, it was explained to them in the meeting on Friday that there's going to need to be a neutral grounds plan on the basis of health and, and health and safety and our police advice. But I don't think it was really explained to them the, the, the proper details of that, why it is essential to do that. And I think the public also deserve to hear that. So I think it would be good to hear collectively from the Premier League, the police, the emergency services, the government as to why this needs to happen. And I think we will hear from the Premier League yeah. uh, soon. I think they are carefully considering what they say and when Mm -hmm. and I suspect that will come uh, after Thursday when the government review takes place. Adam thank you very much for coming on you were lucky to actually uh, come on today Uh, I did think about banning you when I saw your tweet yesterday saying that Yorkshire pudding is the most overrated food but uh, (laughs) I'll uh, I'll let you off. Say two Mancunians. Well, Indeed. yeah, I, I mean, there's not much I like from the wrong side of the Pennines, but th- their pudding is one of them. So, you know, I'm a big fan of Yorkshire pudding. <laughs> What's wrong with you, man? I've also been told off because my, my dad is actually from Leeds. So uh, I've been told off from one half of my family already. <laughs> so so you and my dad are now building a two-man army, um, even in lockdown, to tell me <laughs> Just in case my mum and dad listen to this, they're both from Yorkshire as well. I also like them, <laughs> even though they're from the wrong side of the pen. I was right. Uh, thank you very much, Adam. Cheers, Take Adam. Take care. See you soon. Bye-bye. Now, when our club writers open up their regular mailbags to subscribers, there, there is usually a, a typical topic that fans want answers to. So, for example, Newcastle fans at the moment, when they talk to... Uh, to George uh, in particular, all they want to know is about the takeover. Uh, And for Laurie Whitwell, uh, who covers Manchester United for The Athletic, the subject is always about... Director of football. (laughs) So you've written your latest article on this saying the search is over. Really? Well, listen, I, I guess that might be a, a sort of fairly straight way of doing it. I reckon there's probably, you know, there'll still be conversations that go on. But in terms of the way that United see that role or whatever role might fit alongside the current structure, it isn't the same as I think what people perceived as being the intention when it was first mooted, you know, obviously in the 
the end, the tumestuous end of, of, of um, Jose Mourinho's reign. So it's not going to be someone that oversees all the signings and incomings, uh, recruitment. It's not going to be someone that hires and fires the manager. That will still be Ed Woodward. It kind of, you know, from conversations that I've had from, you know, quite a while now, over a year really, um, I've always sort of got this sense that United wouldn't really be appointing that kind of figure, um, you know, from speaking to people. Uh, agents or whoever else might have been spoken to at the time from United's point of view and uh, I just keep getting this question sort of every time I do a Q&A any update on the director of football Edwin van der Sar you know names get thrown at me that kind of thing and I just sort of thought well I'll, I'll do a piece to kind of uh, as, as plainly as I can explain the current situation. We've talked about it quite a lot on this pod as well with you and and separately with Mark and it's quite tricky because so many people I speak to and it'll be the same with you think that a director of football, technical director, sporting director would be a no-brainer for Manchester United. Yeah. People who have experience of it, who have seen it work, who are involved in those structures now and they think a team of Manchester United's size, history, reputation, financial might, ambition, etc. Um, should be doing this, that it's a must for them. But there's something that doesn't add up from their perspective. They don't see it as being essential. They're on their own path and... I'm going to court loads of criticism here because I actually think they, they look to be on a reasonable path. They are building slowly in the right direction from what I can see in, in certain areas. And I know that's not a popular view, view especially on, on social media, but they clearly have a, a slightly different perspective than a lot of the people we speak to. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, as you say, if, you, if you're um, drawing a line in the sand with, with this coronavirus, you know, after the Burnley game, um, the response probably would have been completely different. Um, obviously, they've had a 11 match unbeaten run in and looking a bit rosier and, and most of the signings, you know, have made a good impression. But nonetheless, I think people, you know, are, are right to still be scrutinising the structure. Um, as you say, you know, you, you obviously speak to people as well David and I think there could be a role there for somebody as I mentioned in the piece that you know is, is well versed in football administration knows contracts knows people within the game and can use leverage can use contacts can just find out those little bits of information that um, and be proactive in that sense um, rather than certain circumstances where it seems like they might have, uh, have slightly missed out on, on information if you don't have somebody that has a continuous vision for for what United should be about, then you get situations where you have Louis van Gaal spending a lot of money, uh, then Jose Mourinho spending a lot of money wanting different kind of players. Obviously, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has now spent money and wanted different players to Jose Mourinho. You know, if you if you then move on from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, is the next manager going to want his old new squad as well? Um, United would say. And I can see the the certain um, value in this that the checks that they've got in place right now, the two strands, the recruitment side plus also the management side, each has got the power of veto, and they will run the stats on all the different um, players that might be wanted. And if um, any you know are thrown up that are just not suitable, then you know it falls on Edward Wood to, to convey that message. And obviously, we had that with uh, Jose Mourinho and, and the central defenders that he wanted. Um, so they would say that that would then bring in the consistency of, of squad. Um, obviously, you know, I suppose the proof is in the pudding and. And time will tell, but as you say, I think for the time being, that there's been sort of nuggets of, of good signings and and, and and sort of suggestion that, it, that finally they might be on a, a decent path at least. Is it Solskjaer driving that vision? I, I guess that's what I think I ultimately conclude really with the piece because when he was appointed um, interim manager, sort of within the first uh, few days, I think he'd, he'd produced you know a, um, a flip chart for, for Edward Wood in terms of where he saw the club in three years' time and, and the kind of players that he wanted. So really, he's, he's almost a de facto um, director of football himself in the way that Sir Alex Ferguson was, and obviously Sir Alex Ferguson has you know years and years of 
contacts that he'd built up. He could lean on managers. He could, you know, um, there's the story about Steve Bruce and, and Antonio Valencia, for example, you know, basically offering him up to, to Alex. And, and obviously Ole Gunnar Solskjaer isn't in that position just yet, although United still retains that kind of credibility and, and, and the, the spending power that the agents will want to put their players in. Yeah, so I do think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has that kind of role, but then also obviously he is the manager. He picks the squad on a, on a match day and really um, should there be somebody else there that can um, supplement his his vision for the club. Um, and Mike Phelan does do that to a certain degree, but again, he is you know one of the coaches and, and, and he's available. He's needed on match day, so I, I wonder if there's still a scope for for a role. But my, my the point of my piece, I suppose, was that there's not going to be a kind of unicorn figure, as as um, somebody put it to me, that, that comes in and, and kind of sits on top of it all. Laurie, there's there have been a lot of suggestions that Manchester United are going to be one of the few clubs that come through this crisis in reasonable shape because of all their revenue streams, and that 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 will put them in a really good position in the transfer market. We've mm. seen Ed Woodward would come out with a note of caution you could look at that from two perspectives either it would suit him to play down their weaponry or it's the reality they've been heavily linked with the likes of Jaden Sancho and various others different positions different players also bringing in some young players that we know about as well what's your read for people listening on United's transfer window whenever that window may take place yeah, it's a difficult topic, isn't it? Because you don't want to sound sort of callous in, in, in the circumstances. You know, people are um, dying and it's a serious issue for a lot of people losing jobs. But at the same time, you know, football does have to plan and United clearly will be one of the clubs that are, are, will be in a better position than, than most others out of this because they do have, um, you know, 100 million cash reserves. Um, they do have strong commercial revenue. The, the match day income isn't as important to them as it might be to other clubs. So I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer suggested um, in his interview with, with Gary Neville, although maybe he, he regrets the choice of um, the word exploit in terms of what they could do in the market. But I think that the general principle probably is true that they, they, you know, they might be able to, for example, offer, you know, 50 million. I don't know if this is the case you know, in terms of the figures, um, but theoretically, 50 million up front. Um, you know, now to a team that might be experiencing cash flow issues rather than 80 million over three years or whatever it might be. So the club gets money up front and that is useful to them. Um, and United get the player for, for a, a lesser overall figure. Now, is that wrong? I don't know, you know, because it ultimately makes the club, perhaps with cash flow issues, get an injection of cash. So, um, but at the same time, I think Wood, Edward Wood is. is, is clearly correct because you speak to other people and some agents are saying to me they can't believe that anyone's even talking about transfers you know that, that it'll just be swaps um, that you know nobody will be signing anybody for any kind of major money so it's, I, I don't think it is just Edward trying to manage expectations and, and get a, a better deal for United I think it is a genuine reality. And of course that exploit word actually came from Gary Neville in the yeah. question didn't it <laughs> and he said I shouldn't have used that as a, as a word here and this finally and this is a this is a very small thing in the in the grand scheme of what is going on at the moment. But also, you know, as I as I look at Twitter and look at uh, fans of all clubs, it's also quite important to fans who who want their clubs to do the right thing by the community in these current times. Manchester United have have done an awful lot of good during this coronavirus, and they they don't appear to have, not this really about this, but they don't appear to have put a foot wrong, really. Mm. They seem to have conducted themselves very, very well during what has gone on. 
Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, they were quite quick off the mark as well with that. So, for example, I was in um, Austria when they offered uh, fans £350 each for hotels and accommodation who'd, who'd travelled to, to the last game but couldn't actually attend, obviously, because it was behind closed doors, which was a, a nice gesture. They've obviously worked with um, food banks. They've um, got staff that are now dedicated to helping um, that process. That they're, they're obviously making food for the NHS in, in its tens of thousands and delivering that 60, to... 60,000, wasn't yeah, it, I think? Yeah, 60,000. And they're... And the individuals, you know, Pogba and Rashford and Maguire have all mm. stepped up. Yeah, they've done really nice things. And you sort of wonder if, I think that is just a genuine sense of, you know, coming from the top, that that's the right thing to do. And, and you know, that's the message conveyed to all the players that, you know, we are Manchester United and we need to do things correctly. And I think that's been good to see. And given we started this podcast with talk about rows and bickering and all sorts of political machinations around getting football back on, what an unbelievable note to finish with it with because it's not just Manchester United, it's clubs up and down the country and across Europe and, and beyond doing some astonishing work and, and United have been at the forefront of that. It's really genuine and uh, heartwarming to see. Mm, I think that's right. I think the, the link to the community and the effective acts that they're doing is, is what's sort of impressed me, you know, in terms of the, the, the fact that it is, you know, meals to NHS staff around Manchester and they're, they're going and driving them, you know, directly to them. So it's just it's just stuff that will practically be of, of benefit, you know, um, and I think I, I applaud it. Laurie, thank you for coming on. We no will talk soon. Thanks for having me. Thank it was lovely. Thanks, Cheers. mate. That's it. You can enjoy The Athletic for free for 90 days and read more from the likes of David and Adam and Laurie. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Uh, that's it. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Stay well.